1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 to 16. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields to it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Thank you, Lynn. Well, we've got a nice, easy one to come to this morning. <laughs> um, I think I shared a little last week that uh, when I was contemplating on preaching on some of this, I was going to do it in a topical way and kind of pick out the topics that speak into our time. But as we've been just letting this letter set the agenda for us, it keeps hitting things that um, speak so much to things in our culture. So if you're just joining us uh, for the first time or you haven't quite kept up with this, then I do encourage you to go back uh, to the library of talks that we've had through 1 Corinthians because together um, they give us the fuller picture of how God's grace works out in our life. Uh, but that'll definitely come through in what we look at today. So let's ask that the God of grace would help us in understanding his word. Lord God, we just uh, do give you thanks that 
in your goodness and kindness, you speak into our life. Lord, having spoken to us of salvation in your Son, you continue to speak to us as you restore our life, as you uh, recreate us into the likeness of your Son. So Lord, let us be sanctified in that way even more through sitting under your Word right now. And Lord, let its authority challenge the hardness of our own hearts, challenge the uh, the noise of our culture around us, and Lord, let it have a refining effect on us for our good and for your glory. Amen. So last week, back in chapter 6, at the end of chapter 6, we mused a bit on how we look to the world when we accept the Bible's teaching on sex. And sometimes it does feel like you're on the wrong side of history the wrong side of what's popular. And it gets to the point, it is getting to the point where to say this is what God's Word says when it comes to sex and sexuality is oppressive and we even get labelled as dangerous. Now, just for a bit of humour into that, I think sometimes we even get characterised as being so out of touch that we might be compared to this 5th century monk called Simeon Stilius, I think you say his name is. Now, this guy is famous for a very strange reason. So desperate to live a pure life sexually, this guy lived for 39 years on top of a pole. He made his home on top of a pole, had to do everything there. People would bring him food. He went to the toilet there. He literally died atop of this pole after living there continuously for 39 years. People would come like he was some kind of tourist attraction and look at him and go, what's this guy about? And so to to mitigate that, he had a a fence erected. But to really keep his life pure, no women were allowed inside that fence so as to not tempt him or to to make him impure. Even his own mum wasn't allowed to come anywhere near him. Now this type of thinking is called asceticism and And it's a denial of yourself to many things in pursuit of holiness. Now, when our world looks at us saying anything other than anything goes, when they look at us and we're saying something different on this topic, this is quite probably how foolish we look to them, yeah? Maybe you're young. And maybe as you're hearing and coming to terms with what the Bible teaches about this, you find the Christian worldview really weird. I know that when I heard the Bible's teaching on sex at the age of 12, my diet of understanding of what, how those kind of relationships worked was home and away, which is pretty sad. And for me, it was kind of like, what is this? But it was actually a huge moment in my life because it was kind of go, hang on. I don't think that way, and God used that to convict me of of what sin actually was, and and that that led to me understanding the gospel. So maybe if you're young, maybe that's how you're hearing it. Maybe you can relate, like I can, when you were young, you remember feeling that way. Maybe you still do feel kind of that way. Maybe you're quite comfortable living a Christian life, but when it comes to what the Bible says about sex, it's just kind of like, oh, I'll just dial that down a little bit, because... It's just a bit, it's a bit too weird and it just makes me stand out in this culture just a little bit too much. Well, 
These verses help us in a few very important ways. Because they take us beyond where we've been. In chapter 5 and 6, we've seen some really important stuff about how serious sexual sin is. And there's no denying that it's serious. It's helped us to see that God has a good design for sex. And now that the good news... uh, And it's also shown us how the good news about Jesus means forgiveness and new life. So when Paul talks about all these different ways in which people can be caught up sexually in sin, he can say, because confidently of God's grace, that's what some of you were. And you're not not tied down to that. You're not defined by that, because in Christ we have a new identity. And that very much includes sexual sin. Where he takes us in this reading that we've just had, and maybe it was just a bit too obscure for you to realise this at first, he takes us to, in this passage, seeing how the complexity of relationships and circumstances, in all of that complexity, God has good ways for us to live. And that's what this is about. But also, what he's written here helps us to deal with what happens when you kind of go so far to this life of purity that you actually make it not about a paradigm of grace living the way that God actually intends for us in the world but not of it, that kind of stuff, and you end up a bloke on top of a pole for 39 years. Because that's not following Christ, is it? We're not called to that. And some of the Corinthians, that's actually the kind of thing that they were doing, and we'll get to that in a second. There's two more things that are really helpful about this. This passage is actually an awesome passage for elevating a view of singleness which is mostly unhealthy in our kind of sex-crazed culture. I'm going to spend most of our time talking about that this morning. But the fourth thing that's in here is that this really does help us and teach us to rely on God more to rely on him to be the one that defines what we see as good, which is all of our Christian life, isn't it? But especially helpful in this area as you and I strive to follow Jesus. Now, it's also worth mentioning that this passage marks a turning point. In the letter of 1 Corinthians so far, Paul has been dealing with what Chloe's household reported to him. But you'll see right at the start of this reading, he's getting to the matters that they wrote to him about. So there's this interaction going on. And for that reason, Paul's responding to the questions that the Corinthians are asking, and that really marks the rest of the letter as we get toward the end of 1 Corinthians. But it's quite likely that Paul has jumped straight into this issue. Not might not have been the top of their list, but it does link it to the previous chapters. And For that reason, it's actually worth saying that he's probably answering some questions that you and I don't often ask, and we don't always relate to culturally. And so for that reason, it does require a little bit of hard work on our part to make sense out of what is said here, yeah? But when we do that, we're always the richer for it. And you know what? In our sex-crazed world, there is no hesitation to put sex in front of us, to put his view forward, to talk to us about all the time, to push it on us, we're so much better to be pushed by God's word in our thinking 
rather than be pushed around by the culture as to what is increasingly accepted and normalised. Amen? Amen. So, why would someone in the name of Jesus live up a pole for 39 years? Why would you do that? Well, have a look at verse 1 of chapter 7. These Corinthians, Paul's quoting what they've written to them, they've said to Paul, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. The Corinthians here have consulted Paul on a teaching that had come into that church where in the name of holiness and devotion to Jesus, people were stopping having sex altogether and that went into marriages. So married couples were stopping that in the name of following Jesus. And some were even taking it to the next level where they were divorcing, not because they weren't uh, willing to be married each other, but that's what they were doing in order to gain greater purity. Paul's trying to help them sort that out. Because I hope that's apparent that that really just doesn't line up with the rest of the Bible's teaching on marriage and sex and all of that stuff. That's where he goes in verse 2 and and right through to the end of verse 5. He's very clear that sex inside marriage is a good thing. In the last chapter, we read very clearly that sex outside your marriage, chapter 6, verse 18, is something you've got to run away from, flee from it. Don't have anything to do with it. Don't try to negotiate your way out of it. You've got to get out of there. But when it comes to a marriage, it's got a really important role to play. In fact, because of the pull towards sexual immorality that we just will experience in this world, it even has an effect of protecting us against that. Chapter 7, verse 2. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Pretty unambiguous. So in verses 3 to 5, we see that the mutuality in a marriage, sex should, sorry, mutually in a marriage, sex should be freely given to one another. It's an inherent part of marriage. It's self-giving in its nature, not getting sex. How does our culture talk about getting sex? I'm going to pick up, I'm going to get laid. I mean, I'm I don't talk like this, but you've heard those phrases before. I'm going to get, I'm going to get. No, it's not how God designed it. I'm going to give. It's really an extension of other person-centeredness. The Bible is sex positive. If anyone wants to um, have a go at Christians for being anti-sex, well, they've just got to have a go at reading some of it. Some of the Bible. It's not about restricting it, it's about seeing it flourish. And it's also amazing in this passage as you read it, just to just to see the awareness that is there of the drive that we feel to have sex and the temptation to misuse it. See, Paul is in no way uncomfortable of speaking very frankly about it. And you know what? not something I'm naturally comfortable to talk about, but his frankness actually gives me confidence. And I think it does model that to us. 
It's, it's frank in knowing that hu- humans, we, we've got these urges, we've got things going on inside of us that, that have those desires, and very frank about our sinfulness and how those things are distorted and broken in us. And God's good design in it all, that God doesn't walk up, you know, he doesn't walk along to Adam and Eve and, and go, what are you guys up to? He, com- he, he commands them. He says, go and be fruitful and multiply. God's not put off by it. And so all of these things are held in tension in the way Paul writes here. And there's no shame language in any of this. Just as an analogy, and look, it's really hard to find an analogy that's appropriate, but when we understand that God's got a good design for sex, well, the right thing to do is to express it in that way. Now, I'm not pretending to give any kind of mechanical advice here, but I think it's pretty conventional wisdom. If you've got a car that's built for a 110-kilometre highway, say you've got like a, I don't know, a Commodore or something like that, and you're running it around town all the time, and that's all you ever use it for, and you kind of drive it like a granny, sorry, grannies, but you know what I mean, all sorts of seals and injectors and things, they just start to seize up, they start to not work. But on an open road, working through the gears, letting it rev out, it's using the thing the way that it was meant to be used. Can you see the connection? It's, it's a good thing and good for married people to use this the way that it's made to be used. In a marriage, it's intimate bonding. It's building trust. It's building vulnerability to build relationship. The thing that he says to remember there comes up in verse 5. That is such an intimate relationship. But there is one more intimate relationship, isn't there? There's one that gets you, gets to take a higher priority than your marriage if you're married. Look at verse 5 with me. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, that you might devote yourselves to prayer. Of course, relationship with God comes above all of this. Relationship with God expressed through prayer. But it's a very high view, just below relationship with God. It's higher than our work and the busyness that that might bring into our life. It's higher than the pressure of kids, of other pressures in life. This gives perspective, doesn't it? And it gives encouragement to be pursuing that relationship. Now, There's going to be a whole bunch of things that come to mind as we try to digest that because there are seasons of life where sexual intimacy in your marriage isn't easy or even possible. Times where there might be mismatched desire or or drive, where previous or ongoing sexual sin brings that whole ideal picture crumbling down. So that's why we're not just looking at this in isolation. We've got to remember where Paul's already been in what he said. We've got to interact with the reality, with this reality, in the paradigm of God's grace and of God's forgiveness. 
the reality of, his, of our brokenness. We've got to remember that this is not going to be perfect. It's not going to be perfect. For the Corinthians, it meant correcting this strange idea that abstinence should belong in marriage for the sake of holiness. That's what he had to deal with for them. That wasn't a good or gospel idea. If you're married, or if you long to be married, what might this mean for you in that paradigm of grace? I can't possibly answer that for every circumstance that I can think up, but that's where we're left. We've got to answer that question. What does this mean for you? And of course... I'm only speaking to half the room, and we've got to remember that. There's an even bigger thing that should come to mind, and that is what if you're single? And it's at this point that Paul weighs in and shows that marriage and sex in marriage is in no way an ultimate thing. It's just not. He tells us that what he's saying is a, co- a concession. When you look at verse 6, that what he says. He himself is not married. He probably never was. And from his lived experience of all this, there's another equally good status. And that is to be celibate and single. And celibate, I'm going to use that word a lot, so I better define it. It means devote or committed to not being in a relationship, not being married, and not being sexually active. It's an equally good status. In fact, Paul's single, he's not sexually active in any real way, and he's committed to that way of life. That way of life is completely complete. Completely complete. There's nothing defective about a person for whom that is their way of life. Now, Paul's language throughout this does at times sound like he's very, very pro-celibate singleness. And it sounds like, it sounds like he considers marriage and sex in marriage as just for people that can't control themselves. Did you pick that up when Lynn read it? Now, to that point, I just think we've got to read him really carefully. Got to read him really carefully. Paul is enthusiastic. Because he recognises that his completeness as a celibate single, okay, he recognises that that is his gift from God, that that is a gift from God. He recognises that. He knows that that's not from his own willpower. He knows that it's not from years atop a pole trying to live a holy life. It's how he understands God's call on his life. And so we hear him in verse 8 Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. To the Corinthian church, he wanted to say, if you're unmarried or you're widowed, it's a good, good way to be. It's complete. You've only got to think about Jesus for a second. Single and never married. I was listening to a pastor who is celibate and single and committed to that way of life and reflecting on on this in an interview. And he, he, he he said this statement, which I think is well worth quoting. He said, one of the things that I love 
about being single is having more of a capacity for friendship than I otherwise would have had. And so while, while I may not experience the same depth of intimacy that many of my married friends do, I get a breadth of intimacy that they might not have. I think this attitude is what Paul is getting at here. You read about the love and joy that he had in so many of his brothers and sisters in Christ through all these different places that he went to. He doesn't bemoan the fact that he doesn't have a wife at any moment. He doesn't experience a void of friendship. In fact, if anything, it's an increased capacity for friendship and a different kind of freedom to serve the gospel, to be devoted to that. Now, this all leads us me, to, to three things that I think are really, really worth us highlighting. These are the things that really touch on life for us every day following Jesus. The first one is that in our church, we must be sure that we're being inclusive for all people. In a church that is predominantly made up of nuclear families, mum, dad and a few kids, for those of us that are among us who are single, we want to make sure that everyone is part of the fabric of church. Now, in reflection on this, I think we probably are that way. But I also recognise, just even from being married and having kids, that you you find yourself drawn to people in the same circumstances as you quite a bit. Check in with yourself. When did you last include someone who was in a different circumstance to you? That goes through a whole bunch of church life, doesn't it? But we're, we're, we're a tapestry. We're not just like one colour. In conversation that we have, in community, the gift of singleness is a gift. So, so there's no reason for us to, to approach people that are different to us in, in any different kind of way. And it's extra important for people that do have the gift of singleness because the gift of singleness does not mitigate the risk of loneliness. Yeah? We've got to be really sensitive to that. We must guard against where our culture goes. Because I reckon our culture goes to the point where people who are single are seen as lesser. Some will see, some will be single by choice. Others would rather be married. And that happens for a variety of reasons. But we've got to be consciously inclusive. We've got to be consciously inclusive. Someone who is single is in no way lesser. That's the first thing that I think hits. This is the second thing to highlight. And this has already come up. We haven't really talked about where Paul's addressed homosexuality in his letter so far. But the point that he makes about singleness here leads us to this point to highlight. I'll I'll say it really clearly. The life the gospel offers to someone who is same-sex attracted is good. It is good. I think some of our nervousness nervousness around navigating same-sex attraction when when we interact with it, with people maybe in the church, maybe outside of the church, is... We just get caught up in treating 
sex and being in a relationship as an ultimate thing. And it just isn't. This passage makes it very clear that equal to being a fully... Sorry, it makes it very clear that equal to being a fully formed and mature adult who is married is being a fully formed, mature adult who is celibate and single. It makes it very clear. There's not one that is better than the other. And so for someone who is same-sex attracted, a life of living honourably to Jesus is there as an option to be celibate and single. See, beyond grace and forgiveness and reconciliation to relationship with God, the gospel offers someone who would otherwise identify themselves as the LGBTI plus category, it offers them a full life of celibate singleness. That is a full life. Now, this is very countercultural. And Christians that put this forward get ridiculed for it. But God is very clear. God is very gracious. Remember the call on our life from God is to limit sexual expression to the boundaries of heterosexual marriage. And the alternative for someone who is same-sex attracted is in no way a consolation. Here Paul's passion and advocacy for the goodness of being as he is, is very clear. Being as he is, in the status that he is, a single follower of Jesus. Now, now that I've said that, it's quite probable that you either struggle with how this lands as you navigate our sexualized society, or you feel the heat that comes back on Christians for holding to God's view of sex. It's very probable that that's a struggle. And I want to say that either way, God's word should give us confidence and conviction that one option for someone who is same-sex attracted and wants to follow Jesus is to live a God-honoring celibate life. And the other option is to go into a heterosexual marriage, which is also good. And some people do this. Now, I'm not just making this up. I'm hearing increasingly testimonies of people who recognise our same-sex attraction, but the gospel is what gripped their heart, not the noise of the culture. And they find themselves happily married. In fact, as our culture gets more rainbowfied, if that's a word... The list of Christians who come out as singles and celibate or in a heterosexual marriage who hand over their same-sex attraction to Jesus, recognising him as Lord and Saviour, that list is growing. Those testimonies are being spoken and they will grow and we want to celebrate that. We ought to celebrate that. Because it's the gospel that gives identity. It's God who gives identity. Children of God. That's where we want to be. Because the message of the cross gives us hope, but it is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
For those that are being saved, though, that is powerful, the power of God. So, the third thing to highlight. These are all a bit unrelated, but, but they all relate back to this status of singleness. This is specifically if you're a teenager, or if you've got teenagers, or if you're young. What this says to you is that being single is a blessing. It's tough to go through puberty. Hormones are doing evil things to you. Not evil things, but they're doing things to you. Puberty, pumping through your body. As a teenager, you're probably not going to get married anytime soon, yeah? Those feelings that you feel to notice people in a sexual way are strong. Paul says here, you are more than that. Parents of teenagers, tell your kids, remind them that they are more than that. There's all the stuff that I hope you guys heard last week about God's good design for sex and sexual sin and forgiveness, and I want that to be clear to you. But I want you to hear that your situation is a good thing. It is blessed by God to be as you are. And you have a capacity at your age for friendship that I long to have again back 20 years when I was in my teens. I went through most of high school desperate for a girlfriend. I don't know how much of this I let on, but it consumed a lot of my mind at least. And when I found myself with a girlfriend at, at, I don't know, 18 or so, it was awful how I treated her because I was far more interested in having a girlfriend than I was in the girl who was my girlfriend. And I'm ashamed to say that. When I woke up to myself and I ended things, I realised that I was doing wrong. But I, I found myself at that point with the kind of contentment that was here. And that's part of Tara's and mine story. We're both quite content. We both really weren't interested in, in going out with anyone or, or anything like that. And it was, it was freedom. It was real freedom. So there's our three things. Make sure that as a community, we're very inclusive and we don't have a distinction that's just not there between married and single. Have a clear picture of what the gospel offers to people who are same-sex attracted and encourage our young people that being single is, is a blessed situation by God. Now that we've just looked at those three areas... They're probably the major areas in 2021 that we should really think about God-given singleness. What we get in those last seven verses, they're the things that the Corinthians needed to hear when it comes to Christian singleness. And so, because Paul's already said stuff about them, and we've kind of dealt with the things that we need to, we're still going to look at them, but we'll whip through them kind of quickly. Look at verse 10 and 11. He says their singleness is good, But if you're married, that's a commitment you've made. So stay married. Just in case anyone was unsure whether out of devotion to Christ they were going to leave their wife today or their husband, very clear. The Bible has more teaching than this on marriage and divorce. And it's far too big a topic to deal with now. But to put it simply, the response to the truth Paul's laid out here shouldn't be to separate, shouldn't be to climb up a pole and get all holy. 
Paul recognizes that there is something that Jesus taught explicitly about. That's why when it says there, um, not I but the Lord, he's actually referring back to Mark chapter 10 or the parallel verse in Matthew, where Jesus is very clear. He teaches exactly how divorce and remarriage should and shouldn't work. So you can check that out for yourself. But it also makes it clear that if you do find yourself divorced, to stay that way. As to say, seek to be contented as a celibate single person, which is a good way to be. If you want to be married, seek to be reconciled to your former spouse. Now, if that can't happen because they're unwilling or or in another relationship already, that's where you might find an example of a Christian remarrying. And I know that for some of us, that's our story. And that's our story of God's grace in our life. But just remember, the bottom line is to be content and seeking to honour God, whether that's single or married. So we move on to verses 12 to 14, and these verses deal with something quite similar. If you become a Christian and you're married and your spouse has remained an unbeliever, then what do you do then? Verses 12 and 13 are very clear. Verse 12, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord... If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. It's very clear what he's saying. Now, it is Paul saying this. He says, I, not the Lord. And the reason he's put that in there is because Jesus didn't say anything about this scenario. There's nothing more to it than that. It doesn't mean that it has any less authority It's not like saying you've really got to follow this because Jesus said it, but not so much because Paul said this other thing. That's not how it works. And the bottom line is he says, stay married so long as they're willing. Verse 15 talks more about that. If the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. If someone is rejected for being a believer, don't divorce them because they haven't. Now, verses 14 and 16, they raise a few tricky ideas to deal with as we finish. Then we come full circle to the problem the Corinthians had in their thinking. The problem, remember, they thought that sex, the act of sex, would make them less spiritual. And likewise, some would have thought that having an unbelieving spouse would by extension also make them less spiritual or less sanctified. And all that Paul is saying in those verses is that the opposite is actually true. So if you become a Christian and your husband or wife has not, that puts them in a good situation rather than putting you in a bad situation. Or good and bad, aren't it? they're kind of weak words. The word is sanctified. They, that sets them apart. And it doesn't mean that they're saved It doesn't transfer your salvation onto them. Don't be confused by that. You don't save your husband or wife through your faith. But what he is saying is that it exposes them to the truth in a special way. And in that circumstance, we pray and we're optimistic that they will come to faith through that exposure. And do you know what? A whole bunch of us here have that testimony too. And we can thank God for that. See, for all of us, we have to be really loving in how we love 
brothers and sisters for whom this is true. And it's true for some of us. There are unbelieving spouses that are not here with us this morning. Be wise in how we interact with the unbelieving spouses of brothers and sisters who are here at church, yeah? Life in that situation, following Jesus, gives its own unique set of challenges. And so we have to make sure we love and include and accept and honour Jesus with them and in front of them. Amen? Amen. All in all, we've been drawn back in all of this in all of this, to really letting God's word have authority over our lives. This is the bottom line on this. And when we do that, we've got to just be very clear how good God is, how good God's word is, how good God is to us to speak into our life. Because without this revelation of his truth, We are people in darkness. Our world is in darkness. Our world is loud. They think they've got it all figured out. But they're in darkness. As children of light, whose lives are lit up by the grace of Jesus, this is true freedom. How upside down is that, hey? I've just talked about only have sex in marriage and if you're single, be content about it. That's just... It's so out of place in 21st century Australia. But it's upside down thinking because that is where true freedom is found. And so our prayer in this is just that we would believe it. That we would believe it and live by it. Recognising that sex is not an ultimate thing. It's not the ultimate thing that it's made out to be. But knowing our saviour is the ultimate thing. And we've got full access to him now. Let's pray. Lord, parts of this have been hard for us to hear. Lord, the, the world that we live in is, is, makes it really hard to navigate this stuff. Lord, our sinful nature that you're still wrestling with inside of us makes it hard to navigate this stuff. But Lord, the picture of lives transformed grace is so compelling But Lord, thank you for how it's evident in Paul's writing. And thank you for the way that it is evident in that Corinthian church for all their mess. And thank you for the testimonies that are shared among your people here of your goodness in this. And so, Lord, empower us by your spirit to go on walking in the light. Lord, to go on being children of the light. Lord, that we might be a light that shines into a dark world. Lord, that we might lead lives that aren't full of stumbling and the pain that comes with that. And Lord, that our light of living, empowered by your spirit, by your word, Lord, might shine back on you. Lord, that your glory would be seen in this world and in our lives. And Lord, these lofty prayers we pray to you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.